chapter 4 is where we're at. Let's go to verse 46. It says, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee. Still hear pages turning, so I'll wait a little bit. It's not a habit of mine to wait. I get into it. I get excited about it. So, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman, or a royal official, your Bible might say there, whose son was sick at Capernaum, and when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of, the, of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the time and the same hour which Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. There's our text this morning. So let's go through this. Jesus had been in Cana earlier. That's, of course, where water was turned to wine, where he performed that miracle there, his first one coming out of Judea. And he went to Jerusalem where he drove the money changers and the merchants out of the temple. And while in Jerusalem, he had an encounter with Nicodemus, you'll remember that, uh, John chapter 3. And on his way back to Cana, he passed through Samaria to encounter the woman at the well, which we spent a few, several weeks on. And now Jesus is back in the area of Galilee, apparently speaking to the crowd. If you look at verse 45, back up to 45, so when he came into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So they had seen Jesus up there at the Passover doing these miracles, because all these men are required and families to go up to, to the feast, all of them. Okay, But you remember he stopped in Nazareth, that was last week, and the people in Nazareth, when he stood up to speak out of Isaiah 61, they didn't believe. This is just the carpenter's son. This is just, you know, who, who this is just... This is Jesus. We grew up with him. He can't be the promised Messiah. He can't be all those things that he's claiming to be. And so now the text finds Jesus here in Cana, uh, an uphill journey from Capernaum. Capernaum's down at sea level at the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth, and Cana, which is really close to Nazareth, is up in the mountains. He wants Jesus, of course, his, that's where his family lived, the nobleman in Capernaum. And he wants Jesus to come down to there. But he was a high-ranking official. He is what's called a nobleman, a royal officer who probably served under Herod Antipas at the time. He was the Roman ruler over the province of Galilee when this was going on. So the nobleman was likely a man of great means. He had great influence. He had probably gone to the best physicians for help, but there was nothing they could do for his son. He may have exhausted all his resources. 
there was nothing he could do but sit by the bedside of his son and, and watch him die. The nobleman had heard about Jesus and that he'd come into this region of Galilee. So look at verse 47 there. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him or begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Okay, so think, think what the crowd would have thought here. You know, a nobleman who is wealthy, all right, in, the, in their way of thinking, if you were rich in those days, you were blessed by God. Okay, that's just the way they thought. But here, and, and I don't know where this nobleman is. I don't know his background or anything, but just, just think for a minute. The, the crowd looks at this nobleman, and he's begging Jesus, who is thought of as a carpenter's son and at the lowest and a Jewish rabbi at the highest. Okay? He's a good teacher. He, he may be that prophet that's been promised, you know, uh, but this rich, influential, powerful man was on his knees begging Jesus to go with him to Capernaum. Now, what were they thinking? I, I, I just marvel at that. What would have been the thoughts? If you look at verse 48 here, Jesus tells the crowd that they will only believe what they can see, only signs and wonders. It, it's a rebuke here. You know, he's not, he's not, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe you'll by no means believe what that he's the messiah okay that he is the christ the anointed one but you know what does the scripture say about those who see signs let's go to first corinthians 1 first corinthians 1 and then we'll go to matthew 12 okay so first corinthians chapter 1 and of course that's 21 and 22 there let me back up to 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of, the, of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, or the gospel preached, to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks' foolishness. Okay, so who's, who's looking for signs here? The Jews want signs. They want wonders. We go, let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verses 38 and 39. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Okay? But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And it goes on, talks about Jonah. But just notice in our text, that's, that's what Jesus brings out. You know, so go back here to John chapter 4, and what's he saying to them when he says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. You're, you're an adulterous generation. You're a, you know, only the Jews want signs. The Greeks want wisdom. Unless you people see signs, you won't believe that I am who I say I am. You're not going to believe that I'm the Messiah. You can raise even people from the dead and they're not going to believe this. Right? They're, they're, it's, so that's, that there's something there for us to realize. Unless God opens your eyes, you're not going to see anything. It's going to take the Lord to open your eyes, to understand Scripture, to, to recognize Jesus for who he is. You, you just don't come up with that yourself. 
He does that work in you, okay? So, but what does God tell us in his word? Uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5, 7. When it comes to believing, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. For we walk by what? And not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Look at Hebrews 11, 1, then Hebrews eleven six, which really is, I won't spend much time on these verses, but it is really active here with this nobleman. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, let's just put that in with the nobleman. What was he hoping for? Healing of his son, all right? What was he confident, or what's the evidence of things not seen? He believed it was exactly like he said. Okay? He didn't have to see it with his eyes. You're going to see this in the passage. Because the minute Jesus says, go, your son lives, he believed the word. Okay? He didn't have to see his son believe the word, to believe the word. He believed what Jesus said. Okay? Now, keep that in mind. We'll get there in just a little bit. Hebrews 11, 6. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now look at that verse for a minute. How many want to please the Father? Now I know my works are like filthy rags to God. I'm not talking about those things like that. I just want to be pleasing to him. What pleases the Father? Believing him. Not doubting him, but believing him. Like what? Now look at this again. Faith, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Okay? First, I have, the, have to have the, that faith of being in the family, the born-again faith. I believe he's the Messiah. I believe he's the Son of God. I believe he died for, and, and paid for my sins. I believe he's forgiven me. I believe the gospel. But then there's something else here. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. He's what? He's God. He's God who has come in the flesh. He has been resurrected. He is the, the Savior. He is the one that he is everything that he says he is. Now, to look at that, you're going to have to study the word yourself and say, what does Jesus, who does he claim to be? What does he say about himself? What does the Father say about the Son? And so, believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who just barely seek him. No diligently seek him okay he loves the person that believes him and digs into scripture and in their prayer time wants more and more and more of him god's not impressed with lazy believers and so when you look at this sometimes you know our troubles and trials are there to bring us to jesus if it hadn't been for this terminal sickness in his son he may have never cried out to Jesus, but God uses trials in our lives for one, for a couple things, to learn, teach us patience, it's Romans 5 verses 3 and 4, and to teach us to make us godly, to act like him, and then to give us hope. You know, without trials, you're not going to have hope. And I, I see that all the time. Unless this world is, is it's, it's, the fact that it's getting worse and worse and worse around me, my hope grows stronger and stronger and stronger. Because if everything went well here, I wouldn't be looking to go to someplace better. My hope is in something better. 
My hope is to see him. My hope is to see heaven. My hope, even like Abraham, to see a city. To see, I want to see that city. I want to see that Lord. I want to see him. I want to be with him. So trials have to happen. Now, sometimes it takes something drastic in our lives before we will see the need to come to Jesus for salvation or even for fellowship with him. It's going to take maybe a... And that's sad. But... This man, this nobleman's desperate, and he has nowhere else to turn. It, it, it's sad because some people never come to Jesus, even if their life turns hard. It's like they're stubborn. They don't want to, they're prideful, you know. And folks, we can fall into that same trap where Jesus is the last place we go to for help. He should be the first one we cry out to, you know. I don't care if you have access to everything in the world and you can afford that your access your first call out for help should always be god should be the lord now being a nobleman he could have sent his servant but he noticed this in the text he goes himself he probably had servants he could have said hey go up there and get jesus and tell him he needs to be here because he probably had that kind of authority but he doesn't do that. He goes up to Jesus himself. Now, just for a note here, you can have people praying for you. You can be on every prayer list in every church in the county, but Jesus wants you to come to him personally when you have a need. Don't just throw it on a prayer chain. You get in the closet and you pray. God's after you to pray. Now, corporate prayer is great. Don't misunderstand me at all. We should do that. You know, Galatians, what, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 there. Galatians chapter 6, if you look at that in verse 2, or 1 and 2 there, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, so there's a, I, I want to pray. I want to pray for you. I, put, you know, put your needs on the prayer chain. I, I Put them out there so the body can pray. But God really wants you in the closet. He wants you praying. Intercessor prayer is good, and I think we should always enlist others to pray, but he wants you. It, you know, others will be blessed when they are part of praying for you, but a, a personal need requires a personal prayer. You know, and personally going to Jesus. You need to take the journey of the nobleman and go find the Lord. Don't send somebody else to find the Lord for you. You go and find him. Now, he's just a, a word away for us, you know. You know, if you look at Matthew 6, 6, go back here to Matthew, and not to take any of these out of context here, but when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. There's a time for corporate prayer. There's a time for us to pray. Now, notice that in our text today, the nobleman, he didn't appeal to Jesus because he was somebody rich and powerful. Okay? That wouldn't impress the Lord. He didn't ask Jesus to bless him because of any merit that he had. That wouldn't have impressed Jesus either. But he went to Jesus in a humble spirit okay, because he had a need. Do you see the humbleness of this? Here's a man who has authority and wealth, and he goes to God with a, really a spirit of humility. Now, I'm thinking of Isaiah 66 there when I see that. You know, you can go with me to Isaiah 66. 
When you go to the Lord in prayer, any other thing, what's he looking for? Okay? What does the Lord want out of you? Demanding him to do something? You know, there's a lot of people that go to the Lord and pray and say, you know, I don't understand you. I don't know why you do the things you do. And almost with a, sometimes angry and frustration. I think God, in his grace, understands that. Some people go to the Lord expecting him to be the magic genie that whatever they ask for, you know, God just has to do it. But when I look at Isaiah 66, I see an approach of a person that God is looking for. Look at this. Heaven, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where's the house that you'll build me? I mean, how mighty do you think you are? You know, where's the house you can build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made. And just think of how impressive we are really to God in all of our, what we think we're strong in. And all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. Now just think about that. How many want God to, you, how many want to just catch God's eye? That's a, you know, just, you know, he's just looking out there, you know, looking at what he's done, and all of a sudden, he catches eye. And notice what he says here. On this one I will look, okay? On this one I will look. On him who is poor and of contrite spirit. What's God after? Those who are poor in spirit. Poor meaning I realize I have nothing. That, that's, he wants me to come to him realizing I have nothing to offer. I'm not a nobleman. I'm not a rich person. I'm not rich monetarily. I certainly have nothing spiritually that he hasn't given me. But I'm in a contrite spirit. What's contrite? Humble, broken. Okay. That's what he's looking at. A man that's taken a knee to God. A humble and look at this. And who trembles at, I, I, I find that amazing, at his word. Who trembles with, there's a reverence in that word tremble. There's a fear in that word tremble. How many of us tremble at the word of God? As if th this is a mighty thing. You know, if, if, <laughs> as if you were the nobleman and he says, he says, let me get there. And he says, Go your way, your son lives. Would you tremble at that? Like, oh my goodness, what did you just, you know what? All he had to do was say that. And my son's alive. Now, notice, don't miss the next text. I'm getting ahead of myself here because I'm excited. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way. Now, note, just note here. Don't just go to Jesus and ask him to bless you because you deserve it. Look at all I've done for you. That's not the attitude you want. I tithe, I go to church, I read my Bible, I'm a good person, I try to, to live a good Christian life. Don't entertain the thought that this is the least God can do for me by answering my prayer. Go to him in prayer and humility with a broken and contrite heart and he will look to you. So the nobleman wanted Jesus to go with him. Notice that in the text. In his mind, that's the only way Jesus could heal his son, if Jesus comes here. Jesus has to come here. He has to come to the bedside of my son. That's the way he's going to, that's how it has to happen. But don't tell Jesus how you want him to answer your prayer. 
If you have a need, go to Jesus, tell him your, your need, and wait on him. There's no need in telling Jesus what to do or how to do it. Maybe Jesus has a different way to do something that's contrary to what you think. Maybe he has a master plan. Maybe because he's sovereign, he knows better. Maybe he wants you to learn something. So don't, prayer is not demanding from Jesus. It's not, you have to do it my way. If it doesn't happen this way, it's not going to turn out right. You know, if you go, uh, you look at, you know, I, I, I want to be, you know, I'm, I'm asking you to heal my leprosy. Go back to the Old Testament. I'll go, wa- go wash in this water. It's dirty. I don't care. That's why I told you to go. Well, why can't I wash in clean water? Because I told you to go wash there. Okay, okay, whatever. God has a better plan sometimes. So the problem with telling Jesus how to answer our prayer is when Jesus doesn't do it the way we have planned it out, and now we end up disappointed in him. As we think he didn't answer my prayer, he doesn't love me, he doesn't care, I'm in this crisis. No, you got to look at the bigger plan. Maybe God has something better. So go to him in your need and then trust Jesus to meet your need in his way. For the nobleman, it was Jesus must, like I said, come here. Don't limit the power of Jesus. Jesus wants to do much more than you will ever ask for him. Just remember that. He's ready to do more than you could ever ask him. Matter of fact, go to Ephesians chapter 3 and look at this verse. Ephesians 3. Now, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes in my prayer life, I don't stretch to that point where I realize God can do more than I ever ask him. The problem is we we go to people and you fix this problem and you fix this problem and you got this problem and boy, you got to change and you got to change. And, you know, we tell each other that person has to change. And, you know, we ought to get on our knees if we want something changed. If we had put half the effort into prayer that we do in sometimes talking about the problem, the problem might go away. But look what he says here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And, and I want you to see this because it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What does that say about the Lord? Huh? He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, is that something that uh, I might catch him off guard or something and he doesn't really want to do that? No, he's making a point here. I want to do much more in your life than you're even asking for. Sometimes you think it. In that thinking, think of how much we limit God. Just think, of, you know, Lord, just get me out of the trial. Well, what if I stayed in the trial? What if he's got a better plan? What if he's got something for me to learn? No, no, I went out. I went out of the trial. It's too hard. No, just be patient. I'm doing something here. I'm going to increase your character. You know, you're going to act, when you get through this, you'll be acting more like Jesus than you ever were. I'm going to increase your hope. Boy, it's going to be amazing. Just be patient. Let's go to verse 48 here. Jesus changes the topic. 
And Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, Jesus reveals that he's, he is concerned about the son. That's for sure. The, the nobleman's son who's not feeling well. But he's more concerned about the soul of the nobleman than he is about the life of the child. Notice that. Don't miss that. It, it, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. It, the point here in the book of John is that people will believe in him. That's what the whole book of John is about. Belief. Okay? It might be asking the nobleman, he goes, yeah, I could go heal your son, but why are you here? You're here just for your son to be healed? Or maybe you're here to believe in me. What, what do you think is more important? The faith in him is more important than the healing of his son right now because of what God is going to do through the healing of the son which we're not there yet, but he saves the whole family. Now, I just find that amazing that he goes there for the healing of his son. Jesus has another plan, which you could look back and say our sovereign God allowed for the sickness in the son because he knew this is going to use what he's going to use to bring people to faith. Now think of the sicknesses we have and the people in the hospital or the people we've who have went home to the Lord. All those have are God things God uses for people to come to Christ. I don't think that people are just in the hospital because they don't feel well. Hello? I think sometimes we go to the hospital because there's somebody there that you're going to talk to about Christ. But we get so so focused on ourselves sometimes and the thing we're in, we miss the opportunities for the gospel. Remember, Jesus' purpose is to seek and save what? Those who are lost. Look at John. Let's go to John 6, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. We go to Luke, 9, Luke 19. Luke 19, um, verse 10. Luke 19, 10. Starting in verse 9, and Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Again, let's go to John 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I'm, I just want to tell you that verse 31 is the, exactly what God has in plan for the nobleman. He's going to use the sickness of his son to accomplish that purpose. And so, notice verse 40, 49 there in our text. The nobleman repeats this, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus says in verse 50, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Now here is the nobleman's faith in action, right here, okay? It, it, the faith where it would be accounted to him as righteousness. He believed the word of the Lord, and he went his way. It, it kind of reminds me, when I was looking at this and studying this, I, I thought back to Abraham, actually. 
If I go back here to Genesis 15, go back to Genesis 15. And I don't know why I was thinking about that, but Genesis 15, verses 4 through 6. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and, it, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, I think right there, this act of faith, I think he realized Jesus was the Messiah. I think he, that's the turning point for this nobleman. And he probably, who knows, he, he's heard, remember, he, he, he heard what was back, these people in Galilee, they were up at the feast, they heard and watched Jesus do all these miracles. He's probably back there before uh, Jesus came through, that, the, through Samaria. He probably has heard even by then, by the time he got down or met this man, what had happened in Samaria. And the whole town of Shechem getting saved and all this. The words probably got out. This, you know, he is, you know, let me go up and see if he can heal my son. I think it was affirmed when he, Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. So that man, here it is in verse 50, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. Okay. Now, I think he wholeheartedly believed that Jesus' Jesus's word would heal his son. Because you'll notice in the text that he didn't arrive till the next day at the seventh hour, which is one o'clock. Now, it's a while to get there. It's not that far away. But I don't think he's in a rush to get home. I think the next day it's at the seven. Why? Because God has something to show him more here. Okay? It's at the seventh hour. Let's go back here to verse uh, 52. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. So what happened at one o'clock the day before? Jesus said, your son's alive. Now, he doesn't say he's going to get better. He says he is better. Okay? It's gone. The minute Jesus spoke that word, the boy was completely, not partially, completely healed. Okay? Nobody else could do that. No man, no woman alive could ever do that. Only God can do that. Okay? So the result is the nobleman and his whole household believed. That's what happened. What did they believe? Well, let's go back here to John chapter 1. Is it that they believed what it says in John 20, uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 29? The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you think they may have heard that? Probably. Do you think if you look at John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, there was a man 
of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come down from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Do you think they understood God was with them? Do you think he was, they had an idea uh, there must be a reason he can do such signs and wonders? What did they believe? They might have believed he was a good teacher. They might have believed he, you know, was, he could do miracles and signs. But this nobleman, something else went on in him. He believed, I think, is exactly who Jesus said he was. This, the one who, what, what if he hadn't left but stayed and continued to beg Jesus to come to Capernaum? It would have showed that he didn't believe Jesus could heal his son without being there. He, he went his way. He, he headed home, and he had faith that what Jesus said was true, so he obeyed it. Now, why didn't he immediately go home? I don't think he's thinking, I don't need to. My son's going to be okay. I mean, you're talking about less than a day's journey between the two places. He could have, he might have had some other things to do on the way. But it's okay, my son's going to be healed. Why? Why do we know that? Because of what the text says. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. Okay? He's going to get better. There's no need for me to worry about this. It's just like Abraham taking Isaac up the hill to sacrifice him. What did he tell his servants? Me and the lad will be back. I'm going to go up there and put him to death, but he'll be back. You know what kind of faith you have to have to do that? To trust the Lord in his promises, that he is the promised son, and all the promises of God are going to come through this, this son of mine? The seeds are going to come through him? That Messiah is going to come through him? It doesn't matter what happens to him. God's going to raise him up because he made a promise this is going to happen. So Isaac, go ahead and grab the firewood, which is symbolic of the cross, you know, and we're going to go up there and we're going to sacrifice. Before he was able to do that, God offered another sacrifice. But Abraham was totally convinced. It wasn't that he was some sadistic parent. People look at that today and say, oh, look at the child abuse in that. That's not the point of all that. The point is, God, Abraham knew God would keep his promise. So just a note here again, when you pray, and give your need to Jesus, rest in his promises. Jesus promised him that his son would be okay. He had peace about it. He knew that Jesus had taken care of it. You can stop asking when you see the answer to your prayer, or if you never see the answer that you expected, pray until Jesus gives you peace. And he, and he will give you peace that he's taken care of it his way, in his time, according to his will. Now, in the account of the nobleman's son here, um, it shows us some things that Jesus is. Right? And I want you to see these. First of all, he's concerned for the soul. He's more concerned for, the, for our soul, more that we are born again or born from above, than things like our comfort, our health, our wealth, our relationships, all these things. Now, it's not to say he's not concerned about those, but he's more concerned about where you will spend eternity. Okay? It's not that he won't do things for people. He does things for the unjust and the just, the unrighteous and the righteous. But he's mostly concerned about where your spirit will spend eternity. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's go there. Look at a few verses here. 
anyway, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 and 9. And just, use, just using this to show you what he's more concerned about. Unless you sh I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. You ever prayed that God would take something away in your life, but it never goes away? And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. My salvation is sufficient for you. What's more important to, to, to God? That you grow spiritually or everything goes right in your life physically? I'm just saying. We can go and look at uh, Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, in that verse, what do you think is most important to God? Okay, The whole world? You gaining place and prestige and all these things in the world? Or is the soul more important? The soul is more important. Uh, Matthew 6, 20. Uh, we don't need to look at those, but uh, I already used that verse. But Jesus wouldn't save his, he wouldn't, Let's, how do I want to say that? Jesus wouldn't have, wouldn't save his physical life, okay? But he got that wrong. Even in, when you look at him, his life on earth wasn't as important as your soul. Now, the second thing, you know, or another thing to look at here, with, with the woman of Samaria, Jesus wasn't interested in the depth of the well he, or what kind of pot she used or the time she gathered water, he was interested in what? Again, her soul. Now, the second thing concerned, you know, I said uh, the nobleman's son shows us that Jesus is concerned for the soul, but he's concerned for those the Father has given him. Now, it, did, it didn't matter that to Jesus that the Father was a royal official. He's not, it, it, it mattered that the will of God was to save him and his whole household. Who he was didn't impress God. God was out to do, or Jesus was out to do the Father's will. And just like the Samaritan woman was someone that the Father was going to give the Son, the same with the nobleman, right? If we go back to John 6, 37 through 40, John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, he says. Keep reading that. says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that I, of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. Now, what do you think God's plan was for this nobleman? to save him and his household. Now, the other thing you want to see here is Jesus' power is really astonishing. That's the word I put here. It can simply utter a word from a distance and it would be done. That's amazing to me. I, I've never seen anybody with that kind of authority except Christ. He speaks a word and the winds and the sea go calm. Mark chapter 4. 
He speaks a word to call a man from the grave, and a man comes forth, John 11. We serve a Lord who possesses all authority and power. We serve a Lord with whom nothing is impossible. So when things like death or sickness or sorrow or marital trouble or financial trouble, hard moments in life, when they come, we need more than our accomplishments, our status, our position, our wealth to help us. We need faith that rests in Jesus and in his power alone. It is that faith which we are to, if we look at 1 Corinthians 16, 13, it is that faith that we're to stand fast in. Watch, stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love, and it goes on. It's that faith that if we looked at Acts 14, in the book of Acts 14 and verse 22, that says, let me read down into this, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. It's a faith that we stand fast in. It's a faith that we continue in. If we go to Romans 4, Romans chapter 4, it's a faith that we're to be strong in. Look at verses 20 to 24. He did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. That is, we're to be strong in that faith. We're supposed to, as Second Corinthians chapter 8 declares, we are to abound in it. It means our faith should grow and grow and grow. That's verse 2 Corinthians 8, 7, which says, but you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, in your love for us. See that you abound in this grace also. And finally, in 1 Timothy 1, 19, it tells us about faith that we are supposed to hold fast to that. Let me go there in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19 and it says having faith and a good conscience uh, which some having rejected concerning faith no that's not it uh, what did you say yes thank you alright okay so here's this powerful nobleman who humbles himself comes to Jesus and cries out for his son's life and believes Jesus's word and does not doubt that word that came from the Lord that he would do exactly like he had promised now that's the kind of faith the Lord's looking for in our life in your life and in mine he wants us to come to an end of our own abilities and he wants us to come to the place where we know that we can't do it but he can do it and like the nobleman our faith must be in the Lord and his ability not in ours.
And you see that. The outcome of what happened to the nobleman is, of course, verse 54 there that says, and again, uh, excuse me, verse 53. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. That's amazing. Can you imagine what the nobleman had to say to his wife and children? That they would believe like he believed. Okay, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Father, thank you for your word today. Lord, you're a mighty God. You're amazing. You're, you're astonishing. You are, Lord, that you can say a word and it's done. Lord, you accompli- your word accomplishes what it sets out to do. You don't even have to be in any area. You can just speak it in your word and it's done. Father, you're an amazing God. And thank you for showing us through the nobleman's life, Lord. Uh, we don't need signs and wonders to prove anything, Lord God. We just need to believe your word. Help us to believe your word. Your word will point to you. Your word will save us. We don't need to see signs and wonders, Lord. That's what, that's what doubters believe. Lord, help us to believe your word for your word's sake, for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.